Well, good morning, church. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is uh, Kevin Crow. I get the uh, privilege of serving students here at BCC on a weekly basis. And this morning, I get the privilege of bringing uh, God's word to you. And so um, here we are opening up this conversation on Lent and the Lenten season. And if you're anything like me, I heard this phrase all through growing up in church, not really knowing what it meant, what it was about. Like I would hear them talk about, ah, Lent's coming, and I knew it'd be something tied to Easter in the 40 days leading up to Easter, and I knew there would be some conversation of giving something up, but why? And so before I can really answer that, I, I like history. I like knowing where things come from, and then sometimes I get going down rabbit holes of um, just worthless information, but I, I'm a believer that in history, if we, if we don't look at history, we don't understand history, um, it ultimately is going to lead to us believing a lot of misinformation and being, uh, going down paths that are full of untruths. And so when I was looking at this, when I was looking at an understanding, uh, you may know, like, Easter is this, like, moving date, right? But why does it constantly change? Like, why is, like, there's, like, this four or five week window where Easter may or may not happen on this Sunday? Well, when I started researching this, in the year 325 AD, a group of individuals decided, all right, here's what we're going to do. Easter is going to be on the first Sunday that follows the first full moon that follows the vernal equinox, right? Like, and I'm like, wait, well, what's going on? Right, so the equinox happens twice a year, spring, fall. It's a day where the sun is over the equator. We have an exact uh, day and night time span uh, to, to exist, right? So you have that. Then you find the first full moon that follows that, and then the first Sunday that follows that, and now we have Easter. So that's your worthless tidbit of information for the morning. If you're ever on Jeopardy and that comes up, maybe that'll help you out, but ultimately, I don't know why that's important, because it's really not for this morning. I just thought it was interesting. So here we are, um, understanding this idea of Easter, and why it's important to us. Why, as Christ followers, is Easter important to us? Why do we even care about these 40 days of Lent leading up to Ultimately, in Matthew 28, we get to read this, right? Matthew 28, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you. You know, ultimately, Easter is all across the world is a celebration of Christ's followers, right? And we get to have this, this season of Lent, these 40 days leading up. And uh, I don't know about you, but just knowing that Christ died for me, knowing that he conquered death, he took all of our sins to the cross, he took all of our burdens to the cross, and he conquered death for me. Gosh, if nothing else, I just want to take Lent and celebrate it as a, this like 40-day party and celebrate that leading up to. And I think as Christ followers, we could totally do so. But I think if we did that, we'd probably be missing some pretty important things. And so as we prepare for Easter Sunday, as we recognize these 40 days, we realize this number 40 has a lot of weight and meaning. We see 40 represented through Scripture over and over again, right? We, we read about how the 40 days, um, or the flood that lasted 40 days, or how Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights twice up on Mount Sinai. Uh, the Israelites, um, they wandered the wilderness for 40 years. But ultimately we know that Christ, at the beginning of his ministry, spent 40 days in the wilderness where he spent time in prayer and fasting, preparing for his ministry. 
And so ultimately, we have this idea, not idea, but we have the season of Lent where it allows us to have some time of personal reflection. It allows us to have time of self-examination. It allows us to maybe have a chance of renewal in our own faith journey. It allows us to prepare and perhaps understand a level of commitment or recommitment that we need to make within our own lives. Maybe it's a time for you as a time of repentance. Maybe it's a time you just need to spend in God's word and growing closer. Whatever that may be, whatever you use this time for, ultimately is a result of your personal relationship with Christ. See, that's the beauty of our relationship with Christ because God made each and every one of us unique. And as a result, our relationship with him is unique. And what I'm going through, the weight of the sin in my own life, it may be similar, but it's different than where your walk is right now. And it's different than where my walk was at 10 years ago, 20 years ago, last week, and hopefully moving forward as I continue to grow. And so this season of Lent, is it time for me to get straight with God? Is it time for me to look at my own reflection and say, all right, God, what, where, where do I need to spend some time? Whether it's in your word and prayer, maybe it is giving up something, maybe it's adding something. But what the coolness is, is not only do we have that unique relationship with God, but each and every one of us were created for community. And so in that decision-making of what, what it is in my renewal, what it is that I may have decided that I need to grow closer with God, then I have this opportunity to celebrate that to live life out in community with others. In Hebrews 10.24, like, it tells us as we live in community, let us spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Right? Like, as I live this, not only this season of Lent out, but just my life as a Christ follower out, one of the things I'm called to do is just to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. How awesome is that? That one of the things I get to do on a daily is just get to love my brothers and sisters. I don't know about you, but that gets me excited because I love just loving people. And so I assume it's only fitting as Christ followers for us to take this 40-day period, whether in prayer, repentance, self-examination, whatever it may look like, to ultimately lead up and look at Christ's ministry about the conquering of death, death for each and every one of us, to mourn what happens on Good Friday, to be broken along with the crucifixion, but ultimately to celebrate the conquering of death for each and every one of us. And so that, ultimately, that conquering of death, making us blameless in sin, allowing us to rest in eternity with God. So that's where we're going to be diving in this morning. So let's pray as we start untangling some things in Scripture this morning. Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, I pray that you remove me, my distractions, my own just whatever's, Lord, that we can be spoken to you, be spoken to us by you, Lord. Lord, that we, as we dive into your word, Lord, that you speak to us as your followers, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. So why should I care what Lent represents? You know, I've tangled, tangled with this question um, for a while, not only leading up to this morning, but also just this idea uh, for years. And ultimately where I've kind of landed is that as I think about Lent, where it leads me to is an untangling of what sin is and what sin looks like in my life. And for sin, for a lot of us, it's kind of treated as a taboo subject. And I'm not here to, tell, to, to blast your sins. It, your conversation, we'll talk more about that, is with you and God. But ultimately, when I think about my own, my own sin, my own shortcomings, when I, 
when I think about sin in my own life, the first thing I know is I don't like being confronted about it. The first thing I know is I don't like being called out on my own sin. Now, it's easy to look at others. It's easy to look at the world and all the things. Like when this morning, just opening up headlines, you know, I saw greed, violence, and poverty. And those were just a few examples of the headlines that I saw. And it's easy to have conversations, discussion, and call those things out. I mean, we have no thing than look no farther than just our, our American politics. And we can see just rampant with that. But when it comes to our own sin, it's quick to point out in others, but it's hard to take a self-reflection on our own. It's hard to take a self-examination and recognize and admit that we all feel prey, that all of us come short of the glory of God. All of us are full of sin. And so this Lent season is a time for us to confront our own sin. It's a time for us to reflect what are our own burdens, our own shortcomings, our own needs to take steps to grow closer to God. And that's why this morning we're going to be finding ourselves in the book of Genesis. We're going to start at the very beginning because I think it's a great opportunity. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis with me. We're going to be in Genesis 2, starting off. And we're going to look at this journey, a small snippet of the journey of Adam and Eve. And for a lot of us, this is a story we've heard over and over and over again if we spent any time within the church. And we almost become numb. Like, oh yeah, Adam and Eve, we know they existed. They know they came. They know they sinned. And this is how sin entered the earth. And we kind of leave it at that. But where I want to look at this age-old story and how it plays out, I want us to look at it from a different lens this morning. And a lens that I think that moves us in confronting our own sin, and as a result, moving closer to a relationship with God. Now growing up, I don't know about you guys, but I heard the phrase, and it's something we've been talking about with students the last few weeks, of um, not yet. I feel like I heard this phrase a lot. And maybe you've heard it as well. Like, you, you know, like as you're growing up, you're like, hey, I just want to go to this movie. And your parents are like, hey, I don't think you're quite old enough. Not quite yet. Maybe even a few years. Or maybe it's like, hey, I want to go hang out with this group of friends. And we want to go explore. So we want to go do that. And my parents are like, ah, not quite yet, but maybe in a few years. Or maybe it's like this idea of driving, right? I want to go drive. I want to get my own vehicle. I want to explore. I want to have that freedom. Like, no, you're not quite old enough. Not quite yet. And whatever that may be, that, that, that what it is that you want, maybe think in your own mind as you grow up, and maybe it is even now, these ideas of things that you want, and they're maybe just, just out of your reach. And what I would happen, I realize when I look back on a lot of those things, even though I, I have a hard time admitting that, mentally, when I got to those points where finally yet happened, it was more about the hype of the situation than really was actually getting to live those things out, right? The experience oftentimes did not lead, lead up to the, like, the hype that I had created in my own mind. And I think for my own life, I have to be cognitive of, I have to realize that, that that's a cycle. If I'm not careful, that it will always be desiring the next thing because I think it's better or greater or whatever it may be. So here we are in Genesis 2, verses 15 and 17 is where we're going to start. And it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So here we are. And this discussion of this text often begins with this idea of exclusion. But where I want us to think about is that with Adam and Eve, it's not... Let us not think about what they were not allowed to do, but let us think about actually about the vast provisions that God has given them. They literally were given everything free to eat. They had this abundance that they were given. Like God said, listen, I've given you all these things at your fingertips. And I can imagine this more than I can even fathom in my own mind of everything they had available to them. And they were given all these provisions except that one, right? That God provided abundantly for humanity with one rule. 
And that one rule that they weren't supposed to eat, right? From the one tree, right? And this tree was about a boundary. This boundary was a tree that they were told if they eat from, they will die. And whether death was immediate or death at some point in the future was not clear in the text. But what we know and what is important is that the consequence for the disobedience was death. And that was articulated by God, right? A consequence for their actions. And this boundary is ultimately is about trust. It's about do Adam and Eve trust that God wants good for them? Do the Adam and Eve trust that the provisions of God is enough? You know, as I studied and I prepared, I had to ask myself in my own life, when it comes to the trust in my relationship with God, do I trust that the provisions of God has given me? Is it enough? Do the actions in my own life when it comes to my relationship with my spouse, when it comes to the relationship with my family, my kids, my coworkers, my peers, and the list can go on, does it exemplify, does it show that I actually trust in God? You know, I know the correct answer of what that should be is that I should live that out, and absolutely that should be the case. But if I'm being really honest, it's probably more of an ebb and flow based on the circumstances surrounding me at that moment. If I'm being vulnerable, like I more times than not, I probably don't exude the fact that my provisions are fulfilled through my relationship with God. And it's not always an easy task. And sometimes, unfortunately, um, I'm not even on the regular when I, I should be doing this. And I know what should be lived out. It becomes an irregular lifestyle for me. And so here we are, Genesis in Genesis, and Adam has been placed in the garden to tend and care for it. He's been given all these provisions, and God's saying, listen, I want you to take care of it. You know, I think about, if you don't know, my wife and I, we run a flower farm, and I think about, man, if I was just given all these things to tend for, it'd be like a Hallmark movie, right? Like, I don't even have to, like, toil the land and, like, and, like till it all up. I just have to go out there and, like, just kind of cut the flowers and frolic about. Like, like two-thirds of our work would just be gone. Like, that's, that would be beautiful, right? It'd be so easy. But here, tending the garden gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to literally live out the creative nature of God. And yet, this work was meant to be rewarding. This work was meant to be fruitful. It was not meant to be full of angst and strife. It was not to be full of just toil and frustration. It was meant to be leading to abundance. But then here we go. We jump to Genesis 3. And things begin to unwind. And we see what happens. And I think about our own lives, things that seemingly go well, even when we know we shouldn't, we make a poor decisions, and all of a sudden the dominoes start falling and falling and falling. And next thing we know, we seemingly are in this spiral of sin. So Genesis 3, 1 through 7, read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, God, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit, of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open, and then they knew they were naked. See, we're not sure what, from the original text, um, the serpent, you know, whether it's a snake that often, often is uh, depicted in our Sunday school, or it was the devil in disguise, or some sort of metaphor. And all these options have been um, argued by scholars. But what's important here is not defining the serpent, but understanding its role. 
which was to tempt Adam and Eve, right? It was to violate the boundary in which God had created for us. The question the serpent asks emphasizes the crossing of that boundary. There's a theologian, Walter um, Bergman, that said, the serpent transforms the boundary God established. The boundary is meant for the good of humanity, but the serpent transforms it in their minds as something good that God is trying to keep from them. In modern-day psychology on human behavior, we were given this term, endowment effect, which is basically placing extra value on an object simply by the virtue of it being and wanting it to be theirs. We can see case studies all throughout history of like when it comes to all the way to children's behavior. And the fact all the way like in these case studies, like in, from ages two to four, the, the child mindset is, is whoever has first possession, regardless if they had ownership or regardless if they should have ownership, but whoever has first possessions of something, that means it's truly, that object is theirs. And so this idea of possessive ownership can come with a flood of emotions and come with a flood of desire and ultimately can lead to envy and jealousy all the way to greed and strife. And we see this behavior exactly lived out in what Adam and Eve choose to do. They decide in their minds that they have experienced an injustice being forced to have a boundary for something that they now deem has a high value. They've been forced to have a boundary for something that what we're deserving of. And if I'm being honest about myself, I can think of things in my own life that I, I create this possessive obsession over that creates an unhealthy attachment to. Here Adam and Eve have every good thing in one boundary, and yet suddenly they fixate on the boundary. They notice that the fruit is pleasing to the eye, that it's good for food, that it's desirable for gaining wisdom. And this temptation is a temptation to not trust God, but to reorder how God meant things to be. You know, humanity, as Christ followers, humanity as we understand Scripture, we are challenged to trust in God in our relationship with Him. And yet, here we are, constantly trusting, is God trustworthy? Does God really have a desire for a relationship with me? And we get in this mindset, in this cycle of doubt, self-worth becomes questionable, and we wonder, well, God, are you really there? God, are you trustworthy? Are you, are you good enough that I want to have a relationship with you? Ultimately, this violation of the boundary, it relinquishes their role of caretaker and now makes them subject to creation. And then we move on and we get this exchange with the serpent. This you pronouns in the, in the, text, the original text in the Hebrew indicates that both Adam and Eve were equally responsible. Not one or the other, but equally responsible for observing the boundary. And in verse 6 tells us that Adam had been with, us, been with her the whole time. So as much as our society tells us we want to put blame on others, as much as our society tells us we need to, we need to choose a side, we have to realize both chose to eat. That humanity as a whole has sinned. It's not about placing particular blame on the other. One hasn't sinned more than the other, but one, and it's not one that caused the other to sin. Both have made an equal choice of violating God's boundary. And then this shifting of blame begins. We jump to verses 12 and 13, and it reads, The man said, The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God looked at the woman, and the woman said, this is this what happened. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent. Ultimately, guilt and shame enter, and the violation of this boundary completely becomes fractured for all eternity. 
our relationships with each other, our relationships with God, we begin this cycle of, taking, of an unwillingness to take ownership, to take responsibility. And it is a fracture that we deal with today. Let me pause for a moment and kind of talk about a life principle, at least that spoke to me. As I was preparing for this, I realized that when it comes to the brokenness of my relationships, when it comes to the brokenness that exists with my, maybe with my spouse, with my family, whenever, my co-worker, the list goes on, it starts right here in my sinful nature to cast blame ever before listening. My sinful nature to cast blame ever before taking responsibility is one of the biggest fracturing points, not only in our country, but in my own life. That when I'm unwilling to take on responsibility, when I'm unwilling to sit and take a step back and listen to someone like, hey, how, did I may, how may I have I hurt you? When I'm unwilling to take any kind of ownership on any situation, ultimately just leads to more and more and more division in my own life. So from here we saw that Adam and Eve, they sold, they sold clothes, they saw that they were naked, they realized that there was this guilt and shame over them, and they went and hid from God. You know, lots of times we ask, like, man, if Adam and Eve just wouldn't have taken that bite, well, how things would have been different? And I think there's a bigger question that we need to ask about our relationship with God that I see in this. And what in that bigger argument, that question is instead of not the, whether or not they, sh- they if things would be different if they wouldn't have taken a bite, but instead of hiding, would they have come back to God? See, all throughout the passages of Scripture, and even in this moment leading up to, God has demonstrated not only his abundant provisions, but also his trustworthiness. God had shown that despite our sin, he wants a relationship with us. That despite no matter how broken and flawed that we are, he still wants us to come to him, the Father, and have a relationship with him. And yet, our desire is not to run towards, but our desire is to run away and hide. The guilt and shame of sin is a failure to take responsibility. uh, responsibility. It's a failure of our disobedience and less about ownership. And what happens is we realize in uh, Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short in the glory of God, right? And what happens is, and I grew up in in a church that put more weight on shame than it ever did on taking ownership. And that in my own life, that it may be like if I had enough shame towards my sin, that I wouldn't do anything. That, like, that was the mentality, like, right? Like, I'll, I'll hide from sin if I have shame. But instead, what happens was the result of that is that I now know that we all sin. All, all of us fall short of the glory of God. And what I realize is that instead of hiding in my sin, instead of running away from my, in, in shame, that if I would be willing to run toward God and confess my sin, if I'd be willing to have a response of humility, of openness, of saying, look, Kevin, instead of blaming others, I need to take responsibility of my actions. Instead of layering myself with shame, I need to confess and repent before God. Instead of hiding and feeling convicted, I need to allow God and my own sin to find redemption and heal me. And so ultimately my hope for each of us here today is that when we think about this idea of Lent, the season of Lent, that it's less about us hiding and feeling full of shame and guilt, and it's more about us seeking out the provisions and the abundance that God has provided for each and every one of us. That when we unburden ourselves from the shame we have crafted, that it allows us to run and seek the Father. It opens up a conversation where I'm willing to come to the altar and confess 
instead of hiding from all things. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Throughout Scripture, we see a Father who pursues humanity in spite of sin. In spite of humanity hiding, in spite of humanity running away, God continues to pursue us. The story of the prodigal son, right? The son walks to the father, he runs away, but here's the father, and he runs, runs towards the son. And so I ask, and I hope, and I pray for each of us here today, that during the season of Lent, if nothing else, we decide that we stop running in the wrong direction, and that collectively we decide to face God with humility and grace, asking for our forgiveness. Let us run toward the one who is already running towards us so that we can be made whole and new in our relationship with God. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning broken. And so, Lord, I pray that during this season, it's not filled with guilt, it's not filled with shame, it's not filled with the burdens of all of our mistakes, but rather, Lord, it's filled with an opportunity to grow in our relationship with you. Is it built on a trust that you want a relationship with me? You built on a trust that you want to run towards me, that you see me for who I am and all my brokenness and yet embrace me for every single flaw I have, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.